0: We have reached our final session on discussing the topic of the doctrine of scriptures. We have looked at a number of Islamic challenges to the Christian view of the Bible and have made some brief responses to these challenges. There are a few more issues that I want to raise in this last hour. Now something I didn't touch on at all in the previous couple of hours was the issue of the Gospel of Barnabas. Now, for some of you watching this video series, you might be living in a country where Muslims are bombarding you with the challenge of the Gospel of Barnabas. And some of you might be in countries where you've never even heard of the Gospel of Barnabas. Some Muslims claim that, no, uh, the Gospel of Barnabas is the true Gospel of Jesus Christ that the Koran talks about. I haven't treated that issue just because of this fact that more and more educated Muslims are abandoning, appealing to the Gospel of Barnabas. No Western scholar of, uh, no Western scholar whatsoever takes that document seriously at all. It is a clear forgery that is dated in the medieval times in Europe. It has numerous blatant geographical, historical mistakes in it. And if Muslims read it carefully, they will understand that it actually even contradicts the Quran. For example, it repeatedly uh, claims that Jesus uh, was not the Messiah. The Quran is very clear that it acknowledges that Jesus was the Messiah. So the Gospel of Barnabas is being abandoned by anybody who really you know, is familiar with books and scholarship. Many Muslim leaders in Iran told me they no longer even you know, uh, pay any attention to the Gospel of Barnabas in dealing with Christians. Muslims sometimes have written biographies of Jesus and proposing some very strange theories about who Jesus was and what he did and where he went. Now, in contrast to these fictional accounts, we can be confident of our Gospels. I want, to, I want you to listen to this quote from a very prominent historian by the name of Sherwin White. The book is entitled, Roman Society and Roman Law in the New Testament. This is what this ancient historian of ancient um, uh, civilizations tells us. For the New Testament book of Acts, and I should say all scholars agree the author of Acts was also the author of the Gospel of Luke. So he says, for the New Testament book of Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Historians of ancient Rome have long taken it for granted. I mean, what this author is saying is that modern scholarly historians treat, treat the book of Acts as one of the best historical documents. So we can be confident of the reliability of our documents in the New Testament. Let me give you a very basic summary of, a, of, a, of our moves moving apologetics. This is very important, pay attention please. In classical evangelical apologetics, these are the steps that we take. We say we approach the New Testament documents as ancient historical reliable documents, not as the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are good reliable reports written about Jesus and the earliest Christians. They were all written in the first century. Based on these historical documents, we discover Christ, who is God incarnate. Then Christ, if he is God and speaks truthfully, puts his stamp of approval on the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus makes dozens and dozens of references to every aspect of Old Testament history and theology. And then Jesus tells his disciples that they will be led into all truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we believe that the documents of the New Testament are more than just historical documents. They are also inspired by the Spirit of God. Now, I I know that I went through this very quickly, but this is the spiral that apologetic moves take. It's not a circular argument. Islam has a circular argument. Why do you believe the Quran? Because Muhammad was a prophet and brought this book. Why do you believe Muhammad was a prophet? Because the Quran says so. So that's a circular argument. But we are saying that in in classical Christian apologetics, we first look at the New Testament not as inspired documents, but as reliable historical documents. And then in these historical documents, we realize that Jesus is God, because he claimed to be, he proved it by his actions, and he died and rose again in confirmation of what he claimed. And we believe Jesus when he says the Old Testament is the word of God. And we believe it when he says that he will uh, lead his disciples into all truth by the Spirit of God. So, we, uh, when we read the epistles of Paul, whom Jesus commissioned to be his apostle to the Gentiles, we do not disregard the letters of Paul. We don't say, oh, Jesus didn't say this, this is Paul writing these letters. Or this is Peter writing or John writing. No, the Christian faith says it's the Spirit of God that doesn't dictate his words to these writers, but he oversees these writings. He allows these writers to use their own personality and education and perspectives, and he makes sure that what they write is completely accurate, truthful, and the Word of God. Now, these are theological issues on Revelation that we cannot get into, but there are fundamental differences between the Islamic view of Re- Revelation by dictation and the Christian view of Revelation. Let's talk briefly about the role of Paul in the New Testament. Because as I told you, Muslims really cannot stand Paul. What Paul says is not aberration of the message of Jesus. Paul Explains the gospel of Jesus. Paul explains the message of the gospel in the context of the Gentiles. Sometimes the Muslims say, Well, Paul corrupted the message of Jesus. Jesus was a Jewish prophet, and Paul turned him into a Gentile God. Actually, not just Muslims say that, many liberal scholars say that too. We have to say, Paul was not there by himself. Jesus' disciples were all around at the time. Paul and Luke both tell us that Paul met with the apostles in Jerusalem, the book of Acts and Galatians. And Paul made sure that his message was approved by the apostles of Christ. And what Paul taught was not about Jesus was not controversial with the apostles or other Christians. Now, Paul had all kinds of controversies in his life and in his letters about the role of the law in the life of the Christian, about faith, about grace. But nobody ever challenged Paul on his views of Christ, on his views of the death of Christ on the cross and what it accomplished for us. Paul, similar to Jesus, taught that Christian faith was a fulfillment of Judaism. Romans 10, verse 4, and Romans 10, verses 9 to 11, and then compare that to what Jesus says in Matthew five eighteen. Both Paul and Jesus taught that men are sinners. Mark three thirty eight and Romans three twenty three. And both taught that Jesus died with his shed blood providing atonement for sin. Mark ten forty five, Matthew twenty six verse twenty eight. Compare that to what Paul says in Ephesians one seven and Romans five eight. The death and burial of Jesus were completed by his resurrection. Luke 24 verses 46 and 47 compared to Romans 10 verse 9. Both taught that man cannot save himself but needs God's grace and leading. John 4:44 compared to Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. Both taught that this salvation is imparted through faith and surrender to Christ. Mark 1, 15, Romans 10, verses 9 to 11. And both taught that the result of conversion is changed life and a new direction in life. Luke 14, verses 25 to 35, and then compared to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. And so there is a fundamental harmony between what Jesus taught and what Paul taught. And there is a fundamental harmony between what Paul taught and what the other apostles of Jesus taught. I want to get to the last point uh, that we've confronted in the challenge of Islam. And I believe this point is becoming more and more prominent in the Western world as well. I believe this is a new frontier in, in our proclamation of the gospel. And I don't think many Christians are really prepared for this. If you remember my very first session in introducing the challenge of Islam, I said that Muslims just are very happy when every year a new uh, discovery comes up that challenges traditional Christian beliefs. So last year, the big news around Easter in America was the Gospel of Judas. Some years before that, it was the Gospel of Thomas. And so, and there are some very famous scholars in America, from Princeton, from other prominent universities, that are raising this issue. What is the issue? The issue is that there were all kinds of Gospels written in the beginning of Christianity. There were all kinds of Christian groups with different beliefs. Many of them didn't believe Jesus is God. Many of them didn't believe that uh, there is a need for salvation, or that Jesus had died on the cross, or that was at all important. So they are saying all kinds of books and all kinds of gospels were written, but the church only chose a certain number of them and destroyed the rest of them, suppressed the rest of them, and tried to suppress other groups that disagreed with orthodox belief of the church. And so Muslims are paying attention to these discussions. And they're saying, see, that's what we've been saying all along. Why just these books in the New Testament? Why not all the other Gospels and all the other stories and accounts? So what kind of a response can we make to that? Let me, wait, let me say something briefly by way of an introduction to this topic. Why were these books chosen in the canon of the New Testament? Many people are very misinformed about early church history. And again, this misinformation is being promoted by fictional accounts like the Da Vinci Code as well. And many Muslims repeat this in their writings too. They say at the time of the Council of Nicaea, the church decided what books to be in the New Testament. So they chose the Bible, destroyed the rest of the books, and declared Jesus to be God. That's not simply what happened in Nicaea. The church never had a council imposing the limits of the New Testament. The choosing of the canon was not done something from top down. It wasn't like a pope saying, these are the books and uh, the rest are out. That's not what happened in history at all. The choosing of the canon was a very dynamic grassroots movement. What were the factors involved in the determining of the canon? Are the books written by an apostle or a companion of the apostle? None of the books that these scholars talk about, about all these other gospels, not one of them was written in the first century. Our New Testament books are by far the earliest writings we have about Christianity. So, are these books written by an apostle or a companion of the apostle? Factor two. Are the teachings of these books in harmony with the oral teachings and traditions of the apostles? See, Christianity was a mission religion, and people were preaching it from the beginning. There was a core to the Christian message that was repeated in teaching and preaching. So the question was, are the books that we have, are they, do they fit the preaching and teaching we have been receiving from the apostles and the church fathers? The third factor. Are the books spread in all the churches and all the regions? Are they being used by churches and all the regions? Not just the book of a private group claiming to have a secret knowledge of Jesus, but are they known to be part of the worship of the churches in the region? And then the fourth factor was, have we been blessed by the reading of these books in our midst? Have we encountered God and His Spirit speaking to us through these writings? Have they been edifying to the churches? So we believe that the Spirit of God led the Christian community in a very dynamic way, and there was a gradual consensus that these are the books that God has spoken to us through them. It was not a church council giving a command. Christians, by general consensus, arrived at this conclusion. They didn't make the Bible. They recognized which books are the books that God has inspired. And there were controversies about only a very, very limited number of books in the New Testament. 2nd and 3rd John, 2nd Peter, uh, Jude, and Revelation. For some, also the book of Hebrews. But the core message of the Gospels, the epistles, it, they were never a controversial uh, writings in the church. But I want to get into the issue of these other books in more detail now. And I want to uh, use a, a very good book that has recently been published. The title of the book is The Missing Gospels, and the author is Daryl Bach, who teaches at Dallas Seminary. We know that there were many other groups writing things in early Christianity, especially in 2nd and 3rd and 4th centuries. We know that church fathers refer to these books, and many of them have also been recently discovered. A collection of these writings were discovered, and we call that collection the Nag Hammadi texts, and they were found in Egypt. Let me read some of these titles to you. Gospel of Philip. Gospel of the Egyptians, Gospel of the Savior, Gospel of Truth, uh, other books, Apocalypse of Peter, Dialogue of the Savior, Gospel of Bartholomew, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Gospel of Peter. So we know there are other writings out there. Now, uh, but again, the belief of many critical scholars is this. Uh, This belief was started by a German scholar by the name of Walter Bauer. And Bauer proposed a very revolutionary thesis. He said, orthodox Christianity did not exist. There were all kinds of v- different beliefs of people who called themselves Christians. But because of the strength of the Church of Rome, they destroyed other groups and forced their orthodoxy on all the other regions. New experts in the field have completely discredited the Bauer uh, thesis. We have now discovered that not just Rome, but there were many other strong regions in Christian church, in Asia Minor, in Antioch, in Jerusalem, North Africa. Rome had no power over them. We're talking about 2nd and 3rd century before Constantine. The church is a persecuted minority in the empire. They have no force to enforce laws or rules. When you hear about the church, don't think Roman Catholic Church imposing its laws. No, these are, these, are, these are Christians in house churches and Christians being persecuted and Christians uh, not having a central hierarchy. So Rome did not have any power to enforce anything. There are other strong centers of Christian church in the 2nd and 3rd century, and we know that they had orthodox Christian beliefs. So what started in Christian history is central core teachings from the apostles of Christ, Pay attention, this is very careful. And then, later, in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, there were heretical groups that were offshoots of this core teaching. Not that in the beginning there were all kinds of different beliefs. But later, different groups, under the influence of Gnostic traditions, went off into different areas. So, what about some of these writings? Some of these Gospels? A few things need to be pointed out. First of all, some of these writings have no teaching against the New Testament teachings. Like the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, Proto-Evangelium of James, Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew, Gospel of Nicodemus, or also called Acts, Acts of Pilate. Now, what are these books? Remember I told you that it's very common in any religious tradition for things to be exaggerated? These are some evidence, they show some evidence of that. In our Gospels, we don't know much about the childhood of Jesus at all. These Gospels come and fill in the blanks. Because people don't like vacuum, we want to fill in details. Now, no scholar believes that the Gospel of Thomas was really written by Thomas. Or Gospel of Nicodemus was written by Nicodemus. Everybody agrees that none of these other Gospels and letters are authentic letters uh, by written by the people that they claim to have been written by. A group wanted to promote a teaching. They would pick a famous name and attach that name to that letter. But but basically these are and, and then it's it's interesting. We didn't mention this, but it's from these other from these gospels in the written in the second and third century that we find some of their stories in the Quran. But nobody believes that they have any historical value. They were written much later by you know. Uh, much later and in a very exaggerated way. But what about the other Gospels? Obviously, I can't go through this book in detail, but I want to give you the highlight of the thesis of it. I cannot go in this book, uh, through this book in detail, but I want to give you the key thesis of this book, which is very important in our response to the challenge of Islam. And to be honest with you, uh, I have studied for many years in my life but I, but I have come to appreciate uh, this truth only in, in my recent uh, research. The difference between all these other Gospels and our New Testament documents, and not just New Testament documents, but the teachings of our church fathers, like Clement, Ignatius, um, Diogenes, and other uh, church fathers, Tertullian, The difference is that in the New Testament and in the early church fathers, their message was put in the framework of Jewish tradition. Their message was confined by the Jewish view of one God. Of this one God who's created a good world. A good world that has failed and rebelled against God and God is in the process of saving it. Muslims say New Testament shows the influence of pagan religions. In fact, New scholarship shows that, no, the New Testament is very much articulated within the framework of Jewish faith and worldview. It's the other writings in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th centuries that is outside of the worldview of Jewish faith and Old Testament and shows the influence of pagan philosophy and pagan religious thought. In many of these other later Gospels, there is not a belief in one God. Or if there is one God, there is also a one evil God. There is definitely God is not the sovereign creator of the world. This is not something that the Jewish scriptures taught, and Jesus was a Jewish teacher, and his apostles were from in a Jewish worldview. But the other gospels were very much at home with pagan, Roman religious traditions of believing in more than one God. The other gospels were very much with the belief that this world is, um, is not a real world, or materiality is evil in itself. This is not biblical teaching of the Old Testament or that of Jesus and the apostles. This is Gnostic teaching, that matter is bad and soul is good. The perp- and very much Gnosticism is very similar to Sufi Islam. And then on human nature, again, the Gnostic view was that didn't believe in sin, but we were forgetful of our origins, where we came from. So redemption for the Gnostics was about having knowledge, secret knowledge. But for Orthodox Christians, redemption wasn't because redemption wasn't about having secret knowledge, it was about being safe from our sin. And one final point: none of these other gospels of later second and third and fourth centuries, view Jesus as only a human being or a prophet or a good teacher. They don't view Jesus just as a mere man. Even in the Gospel of Thomas that scholars refer to a lot, Jesus is more than a man. Jesus is omnipresent. Jesus is the agent of creation. Jesus is the revealer of God to humanity. There is not a single document that says Jesus was a good prophet who just taught us good things. All these other Gospels fall short of the New Testament affirmation of Jesus. Nevertheless, yes, they have a very high view of Jesus. So we see that it wasn't the New Testament writers or Paul who were influenced by pagan philosophies and Roman religions. No, they were faithful to what God had revealed from the very beginning in the Old Testament and continued that uh, with the climax of Christ. Jesus was the Messiah who had come to fulfill the promises of God in the Old Testament. It it was the other later Gospels who had a totally different view of God and man and sin and salvation and Christ. I really have come to appreciate in the recent past the emphasis on monotheism in early Christianity. And Christians were trying to make sense of how in that monotheistic God we can encounter Jesus as God incarnate. They could have easily gone into Gnostic and pagan religions and talked about Jesus as a second God. But they wanted to be faithful to God's revelation throughout the Old Testament history. This has brought us to the end of our theological discussions on the differences between Islam and Christianity. I view this course really as an introduction to these issues. This is not all that one has to know about Islam or Christian faith. There are hosts of issues that we didn't even discuss. And these are, there are a host of other issues that really um, create a huge difference between Islam and Christianity. But I believe, as I said in the beginning, that these are the central issues. And theology is not all that we need to know about Islam. There are many other things we need to know about Islamic culture and society Witnessing and discipleship as we are growing to be effective witnesses for Christ. But I really want to encourage you to let Islam be a challenge to you throughout your Christian life. I want you to let the challenges and questions from Muslims to drive you deeper into your own faith. Don't be complacent about your Christian faith and your understanding of theology. Don't be happy with a few pat answers and, uh, you know, apologetic points. Keep reading, keep learning, keep looking for good answers. And through this learning, thank God that you have come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. We are not Christians because we are smarter than Muslims. We are not believers in Christ because our hearts are purer than others. We are not believers because we love God more than others. We are believers in Christ because out of his grace, he has saved us. He has opened our blind eyes and touched our dead heart. So we should not become proud in our knowledge and in our education. We should humbly learn and humbly present our faith to Muslims who are interested to know about the truth of Christ. As we are told in 1 Peter 3.15, we should always be ready to have an answer for those who question about our hope. And we should do this with humility and gentleness. Thank you.